sorry to uh, interrupt. You can certainly continue in just a little bit. It's a great pleasure and opportunity we have today to have Luke Kipfer um, with us. He's spent a number of years on the mission field, helped organize and found a mission agency that you'll read about in your um, uh, Hot Off the Press and other further information about him, and he'll tell us a little more about himself as well. But uh, um, a master teacher. Uh, through things that we've been uh, teaching here in uh, cat and dog theology and as well uh, um, part of the uh, um, Perspectives of World Christian Movement, one of the the classes that I took in seminary that was just um, life-changing, paradigm-shifting kind of totally rearranging priority kind of stuff. And and that's what he's going to share with us uh, today. Some real basic core elements, foundational stuff about following after Jesus together. So Luke, glad you're here. Please, uh, thanks for joining with us. And let's, let's pray together. Dear gracious God, we give you thanks for this time to gather. We thank you for your written word that speaks to us of, of truth that, that leads to you and leads to the fullness of, of life in you. And we ask now that your spirit would so fill Luke and so fill us that he, he would speak and we would hear your voice. And Help us all to hear from you and to follow. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning. And it is a privilege to be here with you in uh, Cincinnati. My son and I are looking forward to those Bengals doing something to the the Colts today. Any any Bengals fans here? All right. So... uh, I got to ask, you know, we're talking about cats and dogs and theology this morning, which kind of messes with people, because what in the world does cats and dogs have to do with theology, especially in church, right? So I have to start out with a survey, and I want to just find out how many, uh, how many cat lovers we have in the house today. Let's just see your hands real quick. Okay, we got a few over here, a few scattered throughout, and a few in this section as well. Okay, let's try another one. How many dog lovers do we have in the house today? Now, cat lovers, look around. Look around and just notice that there's a lot more dog lovers than there's cat lovers. And there's a reason for that, right? There's a reason for that. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Let me first introduce to you my family. Uh, We live in Kentucky, but we'd rather be in Colorado climbing mountains. Um, I'm originally from Ontario, Canada. My wife is from uh, Indiana. We lived in Asia for 10 years. We're never really sure where we're from. Uh, Currently in Kentucky. But every summer we go out and we climb some of Colorado's mountains. Any 14er people here today? Okay, we've got at least one. The, any, oh, back here. All right. So maybe we need to get together and find out how many 14ers we've climbed. We love to climb. We love the mountains. And, uh, but we're currently in uh, Kentucky. I have a 17-year-old daughter. Her name is Brittany. She is leaving for India and Nepal this week. She's with YWAM doing a discipleship training school. And she's now entering the, the missional site. So... You can be praying for Brittany as she heads out this week. My second daughter is Courtney. She's 15, and uh, believe it or not, I have a 13-year-old son. So God has blessed me with teenagers right now. Can you imagine what it's like at our house with three teenagers? Well, let's jump right into our material because (laughs) I have something really serious to talk about. I'm here to talk to you about a cancer in the church, and not just the church in Cincinnati, but all over the world 
The body of Christ is suffering from a disease, a sickness that is metastasizing. It is spreading. It is a joy killer. And we have a name for it. We call it cat theology. Cat theology. Or maybe better term, cat meology. Meow. It's all about me, as you're going to discover in just a moment. Cat meology. Now, before I explain what I mean by cat meology, I want to talk a little bit about the style of my speaking. Because I contend to speak rather rapidly. I get up to gusts of 300 words per minute. And uh, so for some of you, that might, like, might seem like taking a sip from a fire hydrant. And uh, if you're a note taker and you're trying to get everything down, I'm just going to warn you, you're not going to get it down. But uh, you can go to my website. You can download the notes if you want. They're on the first page down near the bottom. Or you can pick them up on the table afterwards. So uh, don't worry about taking notes. Just uh, we're going we're gonna to rip right into this. Are, are you ready to go? All right, so let's go. To illustrate Cat's theology, what I typically do is take people back to the beginning of the Bible, the first chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. Now, we're limited for time this morning, so I'm not going to read through that, but I, I actually start at Genesis 1, I read verse 2, 3, 4, 5. I go all the way up to verse 20, and then I notice something about my audience. I begin to lose them. At least by verse 20, they're tra- starting to check out, they're starting to get on to other things, and they are actually, well, quite frankly, they're bored. They're bored. And, uh, you know, they'll tell me different reasons why they're bored. They'll say things like, well, you know, I've heard it before. I'm really familiar with that. I know what happened on day one, day two, day three, how God created the world. And uh, the reality is, is that none of those are really the real answer. There's actually another reason why people are bored with Genesis chapter one. And that is because people aren't there. We're not really mentioned, well, I mean, we're, we're kind of created in the end of the chapter, we kind of slide in, but nothing really exciting happens with people until about chapter 3. And then we've got the story of a woman eating a fruit, and uh, God has to launch a massive rescue operation to get us out of our predicament, and all at once our story joins God's story. We get excited because now the Bible is about us. There's a story, and we're in the story. But the first two chapters, oh, boring. All about animals and the creation and all the stuff that God made. There's no people in the story. I need to ask you a question. When we read our Bibles with that perspective, with that paradigm, saying my story, God's story, where am I in the story, we need to ask something very, very simply, and that is, is this book about us primarily? Or is it about someone else? We need to ask that very simple question. And it may not seem very clear to you right now, but as we move along, I think you'll understand that in many ways, we are asking right now, who is the VIP? Who is the main character? Who is primary in the Word of God? Now, we might know intellectually, theologically what that that answer is, but who really, in all reality, is the main character of the Bible? Now, there's really potentially two main characters. God is a character in the Bible. We could say he is the main character. And if he is, we're asking a very simple set of questions that go like this. What does God get out of that? What does God get out of creation? What does God get out of saving me? What does God get out of taking me to heaven? What does God get? That's one set of questions if, in fact, God is the main character of the Bible. But there's another possible main character, and that's people. That's people. What do I get? What's in it for me? 
What do I get when I get saved? What do I get when I go to heaven? What do I get? What's in it for me? That's a very people-centric approach to the Word of God. Now, let me make two very bold statements to get us started to set the tension up. Number one, God is the main character of the Bible and he lives to radiate his glory. Can I hear an amen to that? That's a great theological statement to make in church. And now you can all lean back and just take a sigh of relief. Go, oh man, I'm so glad this guy said that because I was afraid he was going to go with this whole, you know, humanism thing, you know? It's all about people. No, God is the main character, but the second statement goes like this. While we say that God is the main character of the Bible, we live and we act as if humanity is, and often we replace God on the throne. That's the second statement. Let me give you two examples of this. The first one is an answer to a theological question that I think we all know. And the question is this. Why did Jesus Christ come to the earth? Why did Jesus Christ come to the earth? Anybody want to shout out an answer to that? To save us from our sins. That answer is true. It's real. It's not incorrect, folks. That is absolutely true. It is biblical. But by the way, when I asked the question, why did Jesus Christ come to the earth? I asked a God-centered question, and you gave me a man-centered response. And we typically do that. We typically have man-centered responses to God-centered questions. Hang in there. Folks, I want to challenge you that it's like we've got a filter in our mind or in our heart. And anytime we ask a theological question, we run it through this filter, and the filter says, what do I get? What's in it for me? What do I get out of it? We instantly go to that filter in our minds asking, what do I get or what do people get? What do I get or what do people get? So let me ask another question. What did God get out of Jesus' death? What did God get out of Jesus' death? One time, one of our speakers asked that question, and a guy stood straight up in the back, and he said, He got us! What a great deal, right? God gets me out of the equation. He gets us. Well, you're absolutely correct. I heard that word kind of murmured here, and that was glory. God gets glory. He gets honor. He gets praise. He gets obedience by Jesus dying on the cross, inviting us into his family. God gets a lot, doesn't he? And we, well, we know that to be theologically true and correct. Very often we don't attach a lot of emotion and passion to that. We don't feel deeply about that. We're focused more on what do I get. Let me ask another question to make a point. Why do we not want our loved ones, our children, not to go to hell? Why do we not want them to go to hell? It's actually a God-centered question. And our human-centric response, because you're not going to give it to me because you're afraid to give it to me right now, but it typically is what? So they won't suffer. They won't be in pain. We don't want them to suffer. You know what? David has an entirely different take on this in Psalms chapter 30, verse 9. He says, what gain is there in my destruction, in my going down to the pit? Will the dust praise you, O God? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? We could say that David is far more concerned with God not being praised than he is concerned or worried about dying so let's ask a question about jesus when he went to the cross did he focus primarily on us or on god his father did he focus primarily on us or on god his father well paul tells us why christ came let's go to romans chapter 15 and look at verses 8 and 9 i tell you that christ has become a servant of the jews 
on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promise made to the patriarchs so that, now he's going to tell us why he came, so that the Gentiles, ooh, this is about us, isn't it? How many of you are Gentiles? Let me see your hands real quick. Get them up, get them up. Yeah, we have a lot of Gentiles here this morning. This is about us. This is about the Gentiles. What does he say? So that the Gentiles might not go to hell? Is that what the scripture says? No, but what a perfect place to say it if it's actually all about us not going to hell. We misquoted the text to make a point. Because the text doesn't say that. The text actually says, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. Would you say that with me? So that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. So that you and I would get so jazzed, so stoked, so pumped up about this amazing God, we would go and tell others about his mercy. We would invite others into a relationship with him because we are so excited about his fabulous mercy. Let's look at some more verses. John chapter 12, verses 27 and 28. Jesus is facing the cross. And what does he say? My, my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Jesus is, is thinking ahead. He's, he's looking at the cross. He's looking at the, at the shame, the pain, the degradation of taking on the sins of past, present, and future. And Jesus is faced with this, this horrific experience, and he's saying, Father, Father. And I need to ask, what is Jesus going to make primary? People or God, his Father? What is going to be the focus of his attention? What is primary in Jesus' mind right now as we look at John chapter 12? Oh, Father, save these kind, wonderful, worthy people from hell. They don't deserve it. If that's what your Bible version says, by the way, you need a new version, okay? Just, and, I, and I think Pastor Drew would be very, very helpful. That's not what the Bible says. No. Rather, it says, glorify your name. Would you say that with me? Glorify your name. See, that first perspective is very people-centric, but Jesus, in fact, said, glorify your name. See, back in the beginning when Adam and Eve took the fruit and ate of it, what they really did is they de-glorified God. What they were really saying in essence was, God, you're holding out on us. God, you're not good enough. I want to be like you. You said I can have all these trees, but there's this one that you're holding out on me, and I want that one too. I want to be like God. And in that moment, all of us in Adam and Eve sinned. We de-glorified God. And so Jesus is coming back saying, I am restoring my Father's glory. I'm restoring my father's glory. Glorify your name. See, God's glory, folks, is primary. Jesus endured the cross primarily for God the Father. Yes, he died for our sins. That is true. That is real. That is not incorrect. But it is incomplete. It's an incomplete theology. Cat theology many times is incomplete. And we actually end up robbing God of the glory that he deserves. Now that brings us to our analogy, cat and dog theology. What are we talking about? Well, depending upon who is the main character, who is primary in the book, is it God, is it people, you're going to have two different types of theology, two different kinds of theology, a cat or a dog theology. Now cats and dogs are both wonderful creatures, all right? And uh, this is my dog, uh, our pet Rascal, and he actually lives up to his name. He's a puggle. 
Um, we love our dog, and uh, we keep him uh, actually on a leash because the neighbor's cat, Tink, um, would not survive if uh, Rascal got loose. Now, I want to just be very clear this morning. I'm actually not talking about your cat, okay? Just so you know that, that I don't make any enemies here. I'm not talking about your cat. But you know as well as I do that cats and dogs are very different. There was a reason why some of us were dog lovers, more of us, than cat lovers. There's a reason for that. They're very different, right? Very different from each other. They're different in how they approach you. So if you come home from work and you pull into your driveway, who's the first one to meet and greet you? The dog, right? He's got his tail going around 1,000 miles an hour like a helicopter rotor. He slurps you up one side of the face, down the other. He's so glad to see you. Your dog loves you. He can't wait till you get home. You get outside the door. Whoa, my dog. And you go, where's my cat? Your cat is probably inside, sitting on your favorite chair fast asleep. And as you open up the door, this one eyelid looks at you and then goes back to sleep again. Oh, it's you. Dogs have masters, cats have staff. You're just staff to your cat. Hate to break it to you, but it's true. They're very different when they go outside to do their job, right? If you've got a house-trained dog or cat, you know that the dog gives one little yip, and he runs to the door, you open the door, dog's gone, everything's good. But the cat takes a lot longer. If you're trained by your cat, you will notice when the cat gets up by the window and looks out the window. That's, its cue, that's your cue to get ready to let her out. And it'll arch its back and go over to the table and arch its back around the table leg. Might come over to you standing by the door with the open door, arch its back around your leg. <laughs> Little side note here, uh, you're no more to your cat than a table leg. Cat has all the time in the world. And you're kind of getting sick and tired of the charade, so you look up and down the street, make sure no one's looking, and you kick the cat out the door. Get out of here, cat. All right, I didn't say that. I, I would never do that to a cat. But you know that cats and dogs are very, very different. There's a joke about their two different mindsets. A dog says, you feed me, you pet me, you shelter me, you love me, you must be God. You're my master. It's all about you. All of me for all of you. Dogs are into their master. Now, cats say almost the very same thing. You feed me. You pet me. You shelter me. You love me. Oh, I must be God. It's all about me. You're here for me. You exist for me. You feed me. You pet me. You shelter me. You love me. It's all about me. Cat and dog theology. Now this joke unfortunately characterizes our Christian theology today. Dog theology says you must be God. It's all about you. I'm here for you. Cat theology says I must be God. It's all about me. Now, 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 cats would never say that. They would never say I must be God. They know theologically that is incorrect. So what they say instead, which is a really close runner up, is it's all about me. You died for me. You exist for me. It's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. You exist to make my life safe, soft, easy, and comfortable. It's all about me. Yeah, it's all about me. And cats begin to think about their Christianity in these terms as well. They'll say things like, oh, sure, I'll go to church. I'll even slog through the snow to get there. And you know what else? I'll teach Sunday school. I'll even work with the young people, the youth. But deep down inside, I'm doing all of this for me. For me. Why? Because I believe that Jesus left 
his glory for me. I believe that Jesus suffered for me. I believe that Jesus died for me. And not only that, but he's gone back to heaven to prepare a mansion for me. And yes, Jesus is also up there interceding for me. And someday he's going to come back for me. Hmm, I wonder who Jesus lives for. He must live for me. He must live for me. And if I'm going to follow God's example, like it says in Ephesians chapter 5, then I should live for me too, in a Christian context, of course. I need to live for me. If he lives for me, I need to live for me. But wait a second. Didn't we learn earlier that Jesus made his Father's glory primary? That we have a primary, secondary thing going on here? Is it primarily about us or about his glory? See, Christians are conflicted over this, folks. We're conflicted between cat and dog theology. And as a result, we have two different mindsets in believers today. Two different mindsets. Cats think, God wants to bless me. Whereas dogs think, I want to bless God. I'm here to bless God. Cats think, God serves me. It's all about me. You're here to serve me. Dogs think, I serve God. I'm here to serve God. What can I do for him? Cats think God advances my kingdom. Dogs say, no, I advance God's kingdom. Cats think God thinks the world of me. Dogs think I think the world of God. Cats, they sing this song, God bless America. Oh, it got really quiet in here all at once. What do you think dogs sing? America bless God. Do you think our country would look a little different if we were singing that tune? America, bless God. Cats think God is a means to an end. In other words, if I choose to follow God, live according to his plan, go to church all the time, man, I get to go to heaven. He is a means to an end. Whereas dogs, they think that God is the end. He's the ultimate reality. He is the treasure. He is the pursuit of their lives. They want to bask in the presence of God. They want to get to know God. They're all into God. They're into theology. They love God. He is the ultimate reality. And every person here in this room, including your speaker this morning, you're going to find both cat and dog attitudes, mindsets. We all have it. We all wrestle with a cat and a dog theology. And not all cat theology is wrong. It's simply incomplete. Now, sometimes it ends up being incorrect. We don't have time to get into that material this morning. But I want to briefly look at some differences right now between cat and dog thinking. Some different attitudes, some differences. And as we're going through these, these four differences, I want you to, I want you to ask yourself, do I have a cat or dog theology? Or where am I at on the continuum between cat and dog theology in terms of these four issues? The first one is salvation motivation. Salvation motivation. Two different main characters of the Bible, whether God is the main character is primary or people are primary, will result in two different motivations for getting to heaven, for getting saved. Cats are mainly worried about escaping the flames of hell. So if you can just picture hell here and heaven up here. A cat says, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. And they back away from the flames of hell and they say, what do I have to do so I don't have to go to hell? 
I have to go to church. Okay, I'll go to church. How many times? At least once a week. All right, I'll go to church once a week. What else do I have? I have to read your Bible. How much? Okay, five minutes. Okay, I can do that. And all at once we begin to make these deals with God. God, if I do all this stuff, then I don't have to go to hell. There's kind of like a dividing line in the sand. As long as I don't cross that line, I don't have to go to hell. And I'm going backwards into heaven. Now that's a crazy way to get to heaven. But that's cat's motivation for going. Dogs are completely different. On the other hand, they're not walking backwards away from hell. But they're actually walking toward a treasure. So they put their back to the flames of hell because they've discovered something and they want more of that. They move closer and closer to this treasure that they are discovering. And you know what happens as they walk away toward this is they have this side benefit of not going to hell. But it's not primarily about them escaping hell. It's primarily about them discovering a treasure, something of a measurable worth. And by the way, this happens to be biblical. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, tells kind of a parable about the kingdom of heaven. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he sold, a very key word there, he sold all that he had, and he went and bought that field. Let me ask you a question. Is there any joy in escaping hell? Now, be careful with this one. Is there any joy in escaping hell? We might think so. But I would like to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that it is not joy, but it is a sense of relief. I'm so glad I don't have to go there. And as a result today, we have a lot of relieved Christians. See, for a dog, Christian, it is the joy of discovery versus the relief of escape. Two different mindsets. And as a result, we have a lot of relieved Christians. Or maybe we could say it this way. Do you know any joyless Christians? If you don't, we can introduce you to some. And I'm not talking about a giddy personality walking around with this goofy grin on your face all the time. I'm talking about a joy that goes so deep, no matter what happens in life, I know who I am. I know whose I am. I know my Redeemer lives. I know on that day I will be with Him. That is a joy that goes deeper because it's based on finding a treasure, not on escaping something. See, in cat theology, we are saved from, period. We are saved from hell, period. But in dog theology, we are saved from, comma, from, comma. Why? Because that's not the end of the story. Now, if it was just about being saved from hell, folks, the moment you got saved, what would God do? He would go zap and take you home. Why, why leave you on the planet for 70 years or 80 years or whatever it is? Because God has something beyond from. He puts a comma in there and then introduces this word for. You and I were created for a purpose. We were created for worship. All of our life is an act of worship. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might to the glory of God. We were created for a purpose. There's a huge difference between just being saved from and being saved for. Let's look at another difference between cat and dog theology. Obedience. Where are you at in terms of obedience? Both cats and dogs want obedience, but they come away with contrasting applications. This is what obedience school looks like for cats and dogs. In one, the cat is clearly in charge. Here's where I want you to go, God. If you do this, this, that, that, I'll do this, this, this. 
kind of making deals with God. God, here's where I want you to go. And kind of, I think where we really see this is in our prayer lives a lot of times. God, I need this. God, I want that. And we're kind of dictating to God on our terms what we need him to do for us. Kind of like a to-do list for God, our prayers. Another difference, quiet times. That space that we create where we meet with God on a regular basis. Even in our quiet times, we can make it more about us than we make it about God. I want to point out that both a dog's heart and a cat's heart beat for the glory of God, believe it or not. But they beat differently. Sorry, not for the glory of God. Both a dog's heart and a cat's heart beat for God, but they beat differently. A dog's heart beats for God's glory. What's in it for God? What do you get God out of this? This day, in my quiet time, as I'm preparing for my day, I say, God, what, what will you get out of my life? As I go to the office, as that guy cuts me off in traffic, how will I respond that will make you famous? God, what can I do to make you famous to my kids today? What will you get out of my life today? Cats, on the other hand, in their quiet time, they're focused not on the glory of God, but on the gifts. What's in it for me? What do I get? In fact, many times cats want the gifts more than they want the giver. That's the tragedy of cat theology. We want the gifts. We want the benefits. We want all the stuff. And God says, I've got something much greater. I'm the greatest thing there is. I want to give you myself. And that is why we must lift up the glory of God because God's glory, the greatest thing there is, is God. He's the greatest thing there is in the universe. And so God must be about himself. He's not a colossal megalomaniac up in the heavens hung up on himself. God is a good giver of good gifts and the best gift there is is the best thing there is in the universe and that is himself. And we make it about the benefits. We make it about the pleasures. We make it about all these things and God says, I've got something much greater for you. What does God get? That's the question. Now dogs... Beat for the God's glory, cats beat for the gifts. Let's look at our fourth and final difference between cat and dog attitudes. Where are we at in our theology when it comes to worship? When it comes to worship. In dog theology, dogs worship God primarily for who he is, secondarily for what he's done for them. Did you catch the difference? Dogs worship God primarily for who he is, secondarily for what he has done for them. So their songs are like, How great thou art, or holy, 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 or Chris Tomlin's indescribable God. They get jazzed and stoked about God. Cats, on the other hand, they're primarily concerned about what God has done for them and secondarily for who he is. You catch the difference? They switch the priority. Their songs have a lot of me, my, and I. By the way, what was the first song that we taught our kids? Jesus loves me, right? And it's true, it's real, it's not incorrect. Keep teaching your kids that. But it's interesting how we put a priority on that. What about the first verse that we taught ourselves or our kids? For God so loved the world. We've made it all about us primarily. And you can read John 3.16 two different ways, right? You could say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we can put all the emphasis on him in that verse. Or we can say, for God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son to take away my sins, right? For eternal life for me. We can put an emphasis on two different parts in that verse. Cat theology has a mixed up priority. 
So why all these differences, folks, between cats and dogs? Well, dogs are into theology, whereas cats are into meology. Theo is the Greek root for God. Dogs are into theology. They're into God, whereas cats are into what? Meology. Meow. It's all about me. They're into themselves. They're basically living for themselves in a Christian context. Their prayers, their songs have a lot of me, my, and I. They're basically using God to advance their kingdoms. Their problems take first priority in their prayer lives. When they pray, they're mostly focused on what do I get out of it, what's in it for me. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You mean, Luke, that when we come and we pray and we get prayer, we shouldn't have any prayer for us? No, I'm not saying that at all, folks. I'm just simply saying that that has become the priority for us instead of us asking the question, what's in it for God? What does God get out of this? When that becomes our primary purpose and our primary prayer, then the prayers for us begin to change. Think about it. If I make God's glory and His purpose primary, the prayers that I now ask for myself will be completely different. It'll reorient, refocus my prayers, my thinking, my life. We're going to conclude with a simple statement that all of life is for God. Because that's what dogs realize. Now we started in Genesis chapter 1, or I alluded to that a little bit. Dogs are different because they know one key thing about life. They realize that everything is for God. And so they read Colossians 1.16. That's where they anchor on. They love this verse. They get pumped about it. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. For him. Everything is for God's glory. And so dogs say all of life is for God. Instead of asking what do I get or what's in it for me, they're saying what's in it for God. What does God get? All of life is for God. What does God get? What's in it for Him? What does He get in eternity? What does He get out of saving me? What does God get? What does God get? Would you all stand as we pray? And I'd like you to to just repeat this little phrase with me. All of life is for God. Would you say that with me? All of life is for God. Father, we have stated that. We publicly declare that, that all of life is for you. All of our life is for you, our master. It's not about us. It's about you. Now, Father, we know that theologically. We know that intellectually. We know that life is about you. We know. But, Lord, when we walk out of here, when we get into our daily lives, into the daily grind, and we begin to relate to people in our family and those at work, Lord, that's where it's really going to be telling whether or not we got this message, whether we were just challenged this morning or whether you actually changed us. So God, I'm just asking right now that you would take one, one part of this message and anchor it in each heart in this building. And Lord, cause them to leave this place not challenged, but changed. Reoriented. Where they're, where they're, you're speaking to them. Your spirit is saying, here's how I want you to apply this. And I want you to live for my glory in this area a little differently than you were before. I pray, God, that you would change us. Make us more into your image, like your son Jesus hanging on the cross who did not think about himself and all that pain and shame and degradation, but he thought of you, Father. He thought of your glory, even in the darkest and deepest moment of his existence on the planet. Father, like him, may we be like Jesus and honor you, our Father in heaven. 
we bless you. We believe that all of life is for you. In Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen.